in the digital equity space, we tend to sort of separate our three legs of the stool as if they were distinct and we contemplate them as, as totally distinct. This is a situation where I think uh, it makes very clear why that is a, a misguided way to go. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, where it is amazing. <laughs> this is the weather to die for, the, the nights in the 50s, the days in the 60s and 70s, and blue skies, and oh, it's wonderful. Shana, how are things in California? Things are also brilliant and beautiful. Um, I'm in the mountains outside of Los Angeles, California, and it is 50s at night and 70s during the day and sunny and the leaves are changing and it is perfect. Excellent. And that's that's Shana Englund, the director of digital the, of the Digital Equity Initiative at the California Community Foundation. Welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. It's uh, it's great to have you back. I feel like, you know, ordinarily, I don't try to bring someone back within 20 episodes or so of them being on the last one, but uh, you have your finger on the pulse of so much that's happening. And we have uh, such an exciting story to talk about today that uh, I broke a rule I never made. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Rules you never made are the best ones to break. I right. think. <laughs> so uh, for people who uh, are turning in for the first time, welcome. And, uh, and Shana is someone who has a long history of telecommunications but has recently re-entered and is focused on Los Angeles County, although also kind of California and also kind of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just in the country, at least. <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely more a focus on the country than, say, Belize. But, Correct. But yes. Sadly, to my detriment, I feel like now that you mention it, <laughs> no doubt. I should focus on Belize a little bit. <laughs> and we're going to talk about several different things that are going on in the county of Los Angeles and the state of California. But let's start off with this amazing story that that just broke, something that uh, you've been working on for quite some time uh, and, and convinced the LA Times to write about. Uh, you surveyed what people are really paying and what's being marketed to them uh, in terms of uh, broadband prices, right? Which is something we don't have any data on, which still blows my mind in the year 2022. But you collected data. What did you find? What's interesting well, so just to, to clarify what's uh, what released today, so it is part one of a two-part project. Um, part one is just taking a look at what are ISPs in LA County advertising? What are the offers they're advertising in terms of speed, price, and the terms and conditions for those in uh, various diverse neighborhoods all across the county? Uh, and then part two- Well, hold on. Before this... part two, let's just be very yeah. clear because part one is enormous. We've, we've talked enormous. about this in the last show. 10 million people, more than 90 yeah. cities, lots of big rural areas. Uh, Los Angeles County is this massive thing that um, that is quite varied. It's not just what you see in TV, like the Hollywood Hills signs and a bunch of people um, living on underneath them. <laughs> um, correct. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I may not be in my top form today. We talked about this uh, in the pre-show. <laughs> all good. Uh, yes. 88 cities, 10 million people, um, bigger than I'm going to forget the number, um, but bigger than most states in terms of budget and number of people, it's massive. Um, and so when you think about LA County, yeah, like think about it like a state um, or even a country. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, that's so the, the first part one is a, is a big project. And it, so sure. the point is part one, lots of variety, that's potential. So yes. part two. Part two is the survey of what people are paying. Um, so we did a survey, again, led by our community partners. Um, and that was interesting enough because to your point, there is no data on pricing um, and service levels. 
which also blows my mind, uh, especially in the context of we're trying to, to like do all of this mapping and spend all this public money to improve access. But how do we do that if we don't actually have the data um, that goes beyond just where the companies say they're putting their wires? But that's a whole different rant. Um, but so the second piece is a survey um, of people all across the state of California asking, you know, do you have internet at home? If you do, what do you pay for it? Who do you pay for it? And what service level are you paying for? Um, and at this point, we are at, I think, just under 2,200 responses from around the state. Um, I think we'll close it when we get to 2,500. And um, we are, we'll be partnering with an academic institution, a researcher, um, to analyze that and release that. And I would guess probably early in the new year is when that will come out. And then when you said you were partnered with your community partners, I, I feel like that's worth mentioning because that's why ILSR doesn't do this kind of thing. <laughs> because if we just did a survey, we would probably have a bunch of people, um, I think 95, 99% of whom would not respond in any way. They would be like, what is this trash? I'm not interested. Uh, but your community partners did go out and get responses. Indeed. It is the very best part of my job, and I feel incredibly lucky. Um, I work with, just in LA County alone, uh, more than 40 community-based organizations who, you know, their their day job, as it were, their core mission is um, advancing education and equity, building parents and student skills, community health centers um, and clinic directors. Uh, we have climate justice organizations, you know, a whole range of organizations that actually do work on the ground and so have both the relationship and the trust of, uh, of the communities that they serve. Um, and so they're the ones who really drove this, uh, this survey. And then it kind of got enough interest. We really did start with just LA County and through some of the work that our partners do around the state and also just kind of word getting around mm -hmm. and there being so much hunger for this data, uh, organizations around the state, including, you know, like the county supervisor in Santa Clara County, Cindy Chavez, who's amazing. Um, she's been including the survey link in her weekly constituent newsletter, uh, those kinds of things. Um, so that's how it kind of got, we initially were hoping for 500 and then we, we set our aspirations higher to a thousand responses. And then it's just kind of taken on a life of its own. Excellent. I can imagine there's more than one listener who's sitting there thinking, Chris, community partners, whatever, what did the surveys say? What did you find out that is interesting, Shana? Um, so in part one, um, what we found out is that for our, you know, what is effectively a monopoly provider, um, which a uh, charter spectrum in LA County, um, there is a very clear and very consistent pattern of uh, reserving their best offers, their highest speed at their best prices, at their best terms and conditions for the widest, wealthiest communities and leaving scraps for everybody else. When I say that, I, I, it is stark. So just some case studies uh, that are in the report we looked at an address in, in Watts, which is, of course, a predominantly and historically Black community, tends to have higher poverty neighborhoods. Their uh, charter spectrum is advertising its um, Internet Ultra, which is 500 megabits. So that's the only service that they offer at every single address. Uh, in Watts, they are advertising it for $70 a month. That is a price guarantee um, not to go up for just one year. And then it goes up to 95 after that. A few miles away in Manhattan Beach, which has a poverty rate of about 2%, very, very white. Um, there, that same service is available for $30 a month. And that is guaranteed not to go up for two years. Wow. And that is a pattern that, pay, that plays out um, region to region, 
all across all across the county. And I think one of the uh, really eye-opening and discomfitting examples that we looked at is we started to kind of group these by region. And so we looked at um, historically Black neighborhoods in LA, um, you know, some that you've probably heard of if you watch the movies and some that you probably haven't. Um, but uh, these are very actually diverse in terms of income levels, et cetera, but, but historically Black and remain predominantly Black communities um, are getting that kind of $70, getting those higher prices at worst terms and conditions. And then you go within the same city, that's five miles away as you drive, it's like two miles away as the crow flies to Mar Vista, which again is uh, almost entirely white and they have, their prices are um, those significantly lower ones. Were you able to control for competition, which is, you know, those areas where historically Verizon Fios had built out? Yes and no. So by control for competition, um, that would that assumes that uh, we found enough, we were able to find enough addresses that had competition sure. um, to to do that, which is um, not accurate. <laughs> it's, and, it's it's like what 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 to what authority would you find out if there was competition or not? Right, like it certainly well, would be very so difficult. We tried. So here here's here's how we tried to address the competition. Um, is so we set we went to the uh, California Public Utilities Commission, their broadband maps, and looked at. What do the ISPs say they do in LA County? And so Charter Spectrum says that they serve 97, it's like 96.7% of uh, households in LA County. The next biggest is Frontier, and that's at just over 20%. Right, because Frontier bought the old Verizon plant. Yep. And then after that, it's AT&T at 15%. And then after that- wow. Cox at 1.3% and they could wow. serve like they serve Rancho Palos Verdes and like a little bit of Torrance, but you know, that is not <laughs> what really I would have expected. Is, yeah. It's uh it's charter. I mean, we have an effective monopoly in, in LA County and it is charter spectrum. So, um, but that said, we did at every one of the addresses that we looked at, we did go shopping for service at all three of those providers um, and documented where there was some competition. And then also in each of these case studies, the PUC also has a, um, it's a California broadband interactive map where you can put in an address and see at the census block level, what the ISPs say they provide um, Mm -hmm. at that census block. And so looked there too, to to document, you know, in this census block, AT&T and Charter and Frontier or whatever. This is what they say they they make available to try and get at that competition question. That is remarkable. Um, presumably, there are some high income Black neighborhoods, and I, I'm always curious if there's any interesting results in in those uh, areas. Yes, and that is. Thank you for bringing me back to that because that was one of the things when we were looking at the historically Black neighborhoods that was just kind of jaw dropping. Um, is that kind of within that cluster of historically Black neighborhoods, there are some that are if you took race out of the demographic information that you were looking at, it's single family homes, similar income levels, et cetera. The only difference um, in the neighborhoods is that one is in a historically black community and one is very white. Um, And the historically black community, uh, that kind of higher income historically black community had the same high pricing as the low income communities around it. 
And that's the sort of thing, you know, we've certainly seen with bank studies and things like that, where the, the higher income black families will be getting worse interest rates, they'll be getting worse mm-hmm. deals and other um, kinds of things. There's just uh, that reservoir of history where I think maybe it's, you know, people, someone at Charter Spectrum is deciding where to deploy and, and what plans to offer and things like that. And and a lot of times they're not as data driven as you might think. I think there's still those biases. Well, and this is the thing. Um that I feel like, and I feel like you and I have had this conversation before, but one of the rants that I regularly go on is that kind of in the digital equity space, we tend to sort of separate our three legs of the stool as if they were distinct, right? We think Mm -hmm. about devices and literacy, we think, and like adoption, that whole set of issues. And then we think about access and we contemplate them as, as totally distinct. This is a situation where I think uh, it makes very clear why that is a a misguided way to go. Um, because I think part of what we're seeing is that you see these kind of higher prices in these historically redlined and I think legitimately digitally redlined communities where there has not been the investment in um, infrastructure. There has not been the investment in certainly not fiber, um, but even just sort of upgraded on cable, there have not been there have not been infrastructure investments in these communities. And so then, you know, certainly one explanation for the patterns that we're seeing, and I really hope we do hear an explanation from Charter Spectrum at some point, but um, one potential explanation is certainly that it's just bias, right? That it's like not data-driven, that it really is just sort of, it's based on bias on these neighborhoods. Another one, which is actually one that um, we've heard from a few of the network engineers that we work with, that we ran this past, and they said, look, the issue is that the infrastructure in these um, historically redlined communities cannot support, it is not scalable to support those higher service levels to everyone in that community. So what they're doing is they're using pricing in order to kind of really price out and disincentivize people in those communities from signing up for those higher service tiers because the infrastructure isn't there to support it. And so then you have this kind of confluence of infrastructure and access and affordability and adoption that all kind of come together in an unholy alliance um, to keep these communities way disproportionately disconnected. Yes, that's all. It's all believable. And I'm sure it's some of this, some of that, uh, as opposed to just being one explanation. Um, The uh, something we should say is we are recording this a little bit in advance. And so if in fact, Charter Spectrum has explanations that are in the newspaper articles that have come out about this, then uh, you and I are currently unaware of them. (laughs) So we're not trying to, we're not trying to ignore them. I I would love an explanation in no small part because um, you know, I, my, mission is solving this problem and yes with an explanation we can have a better sense of how to how to solve it um well i think that leads us to our our second uh focus which is that you know without necessarily saying that charter is entirely to blame um there are significant challenges in los angeles county and the board of supervisors seems to be stepping up time and again uh, and listening to a invigorated group of stakeholders that are working with them on this issue. So what is the latest uh, in terms of what the board is doing? So as you might remember last October, and I think we did talk about this on my last uh, appearance in this space, fewer than 20 podcasts ago, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, the the board passed unanimously um, a kind of set of actions that 
were focused on how to leverage existing assets and $56 million in ARPA money uh, to very quickly expand fast and affordable, if not free, access to the people who most need it in LA County. Um, and the kind of two pieces that really moved forward on that was one is a community broadband network. Um, and then two is a study, a feasibility study and kind of an action plan for a fiber, countywide fiber network and what that would look like. Um, so that was about a year ago now. Since then, there's been by government standards, a very fast, <laughs> a ton of very fast uh, motion on it, um, leading up to uh, two weeks ago from when we're recording this now, um, a another set of two unanimous um, decisions from the board, one that authorized the very sexily named internal services division um, mm -hmm. to move forward with master service agreements um, so that that is to begin the contracting process for actually building out the community broadband network um, and the second was creating a first ever director of digital equity again to sit in that internal services department um, and start to put together the uh, a coordinating committee that is kind of cross-jurisdictional so again it sounds like I think for, for folks sitting in some counties and maybe for you, Chris, where you're sitting, this sounds like uh, probably unnecessary bureaucracy. But if you again think about LA County as a state or as a country, and then think that there is actually no one place within the county that has awareness, let alone any sort of like authority or co coordinating capacity across all of those jurisdictions um, and all of those agencies, it becomes clear that what a problem <laughs> that might look yes. like. Uh, and so the, the county created, the board created this director of digital equity um, to be that sort of coordinating focus. Yeah, and that's terrific because I feel like, again, in such a bureaucratic environment across the various cities, the county, all the different agencies, uh, people have their historic silos that they are in charge of. And it's very easy to forget or to put off to the side the need to work on digital equity uh, unless you have someone reminding them and showing up in meetings and and basically making sure it doesn't fall, people don't fall into old habits of ignoring it because uh, that's what happens. And that is what is still happening in most cities in the United States, I would say. Well, and I think there's the ignoring it. And then I think there's also just the um, the sort of capacity, right? So in you have, you kind of think about the 88 cities in LA County and you have, yes, the city of LA, which is obviously like massive and well-resourced and has a ton of people uh, working at it. Um, but then you have cities like Kudahe, which is in the Southeast LA. And I think there are nine people uh, who work in the city of Kudahe. Um, <laughs> it's also one of the least connected cities um, in the county and in uh, kind of one of those zones that has been digitally redlined. The city of Kudahe is not going to have the capacity. They're trying to keep the water working <laughs> um, and the street lights moving and kind of all of that. There's no capacity. And so um, kind of having an, an entity at the county level that can help coordinate, add capacity, say, okay, hey, Maywood, which is another small city right there, Bell Gardens, and have all those solo cities, how can we support you in working together and not having to individually find the capacity to do it? But um, I, I think that's going to be a game changer. Yes, I can imagine, among other things, just being able to say, this city is using these resources. Here, you could copy them. That, uh, that could You be could helpful. copy them. Here, why don't we all together go for this pot of money mm -hmm. for the region instead of 
everybody competing for less of it or whatever. I think that's how smart transit really developed too. I mean, there's a real Mm -hmm. precedent for that in the LA region, um, as well as many others of working together across transit agencies, which is, you know, makes sense. The community network that um, is that where it's targeted at a number of areas that have historically been left behind. I mean, it's largely like uh, apartment buildings and things like that areas that were that were specifically targeted to have an improved investment. The city did an RFP process. Yeah. So um, at the very beginning of the process, actually leading up to that October vote, the county did an assessment and created them. I'm going to misname them, but essentially like target zones. So looked Mm -hmm. across the the county and said, where are the um, kind of hot spots of um, very low adoption, lower than the county average or or worse? Um, And then kind of where are those located? What are the things that make them similar, right? And it turns out, again, this will not shock probably anybody who's listening to this, but things that make them similar, those hotspots also tend to be hotspots for, you know, economic development challenges, and they tend to be fairly low income, and they tend to be immigrant communities, um, and they tend to be communities of color. Um, And then, of course, the kind of big swath of rural uh, up in the North County, which has no access to anything. So it is an adoption problem. Right. The um the city so the, these areas both urban and rural they were um there was an RFP where different entities could propose solutions and then the county would own it and those solutions that's the intention I'm sure there's always respondents who are like or well, I could own it and we would all be happier <laughs> <laughs> I mean that is an ongoing fight um <laughs> the uh. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that the county approached this is really interesting, which was what they said was, um, what count, what can we do with existing county assets? So obviously in a county this big, there are, um, you know, myriad county buildings and power poles and, and all kinds of things. And then also within the city. So the county has an MOU with the city of LA. Similarly, like what are the city assets that you could put, say, fixed wireless facilities on um, in these tiny communities uh, that that quickly you could do that quickly to get up to speed quickly um, with a with public assets. And so, yeah, they uh, issued and it was called an RFSQ uh, request for statement of qualifications. I think it got 13 back Mm -hmm. um, qualified nine of them um, and now are moving forward in that contracting process. Excellent. So that's the that's what will be the community network when we talk about that. Because yes. I feel like some people might have been like, "What? They're building a community network?" Yes, but in a different fashion than than it's not Chattanooga. It's a it's no. a different approach. Um, although it is studying an approach that where the city would own fiber um, and uh, fiber to residents potentially or different models. Yeah. Um, so a lot is happening in Los Angeles County and and still more is happening at the CPUC where um, you've had to be really focused as well because uh, it turns out a lot of decisions get made there that will make your life easier or harder in trying to do this work. One of the things that uh, that we were talking about, and, and the, we could talk about a lot of things, but I think given our time, we'll have to um, keep it short. Uh, maybe what's, what's one proceeding that you're excited to see? I think the one that has been most interesting heretofore, although there are a few that are going to be very interesting moving forward, um, is around the rules around, it's called the federal funding account, which is the account created for $2 billion uh, in last mile funding that the state allocated out of federal funding. The rules had to follow, uh, be within the treasury rules 
the final rule, which is a horribly named thing. For the Capital um, Projects Fund. Yeah. I well, do no, have to say- no, actually, oh, uh, no. different. No, this is a different pot of money um, than the Capital Projects Fund. I oh, okay. It was the, uh, that, it that makes it the um, Slurferf, <laughs> the state and local uh, fiscal recovery fund. Yes. And can we just say Slurferf a few more times? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can. I've been known to do that. <laughs> I, I need that in my life, some Slurferf. I have to say, like, um, I, I am consumed with doubt whenever I see FFA, if it is what I remember it to be, um, uh, not just because of Future Farmers for America, but also just because I'm like, wait, is this really just the broadband pot of money or is it something else? But, but no, yes. this this is really it is two billion dollars that California has allocated for um, last mile broadband. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has been obviously this kind of rolling I don't want to call it a fight. Let's call it a discussion. There's been a rolling discussion um, with the CPUC through that proceeding on, um, you know, kind of how far to the edges of the final rule um, California is going to go in terms of, you know, preferencing fiber, preferencing public projects, all of it, um, requiring affordability, those kinds of things. And so um, that rule. I do want to just remind people because we've talked about so many different things in recent months. The Slurf Earth rules specifically, like the way that worked was that a bunch of money went out to counties and cities themselves. Like I think Los Angeles County got like $2 billion, but states also got money and they are able to distribute that. And that's where this money comes from. California could have chosen to spend it on a variety of things, but they right. chose to dedicate it to broadband. And so um, that I think is worth highlighting. And that's why I wanted to just yeah. come back no, that's, for a second. That's right. It was too, uh, part of a package, Senate bill. 156 for my legislative nerds out there um, that did, it did three things. It created, it set aside $3.25 billion for a statewide open access middle mile network, $2 billion for last mile, um, you know, theoretically to connect to the to middle mile, but not necessarily. Um, and then $750 million in a loan loss reserve fund to allow specifically local agencies um, to bond for for money that if they didn't qualify for these other grant programs, which is um, super so, cool, but beyond the scope of our show today. <laughs> correct. Um, so this two billion in this last mile uh, is in this federal funding account. The rules have been moving, um, and kind of in the process of that, um, we've been building capacity at the local level um, in LA County and beyond um, to engage in this conversation. And that sounds like something very simple. But for anybody who's worked with a utilities commission, it isn't. <laughs> uh, you have to you kind of be an official. There's all of these forms. You have to file them and a, a motion to become a party with a certificate of service. Like everything down to the font size has to be exactly right within this very complicated code section, et cetera. And then once you are a party to file comments, um, you know, it's not a comment form. It's again, like a legal document that I has feel to- like we got rejected more times than we've got accepted. I mean, we just have to keep going back and fixing these <laughs> yeah, things. I mean, happily they like, when you get rejected, they send it back and they say, you have to fix these things. Um, I think I've, I've probably filed, I don't know, at least a dozen or more in the last year. Um, and I think I had one that was accepted without modification. And I think they were just being nice. I think I, when I look back, I got the font wrong still. But they kind of through that proceeding, like we have done a significant amount of organizing and technical support um, to engage community groups and municipalities around the state to go through that onerous process so that voice could be heard and could be part of those proceedings. Um, And I think as a result, you ended up with um, a decision that really does 
focus on the public good and on closing this gap rather than just funneling more money like other states have done to you know charter and comcast there's there's a fierce telecom um headline a couple weeks ago that i've been forwarding around that pointed to i think it was more than 50 percent of state broadband money has gone to the combination of charter and comcast well yeah I, i've seen a number <laughs> of different ones i mean like uh, windstream and frontier have received more than 200 million dollars which is remarkable both of them are just coming out of bankruptcy after years of wow. of engaging in really horrible practices coming out of bankruptcy and also settlements yes yeah <laughs> it's just, just it's yeah and and insane. comcast is um, my understanding is for people who are tracking this and i am not one of them that's one of the headaches i have not jumped into uh, comcast is the single largest winner of the biggest companies which shocks me because they are not in most of the headlines uh at&t yeah. and charter spectrum are publicly getting a lot of money but Char comcast is apparently gobbling it up behind the scenes so insane yeah. so I mean, i think you know our part of what we've really been working with community on is making sure that at the legislature and the governor's office and at the puc uh the rules are such that um you know, at least community and local solutions have a fighting chance. Well, and you're that. seeing that in on all across proceedings. My understanding mm -hmm. is you are seeing that more community groups are participating in in they're getting hooked on it, right? They're <laughs> they've had <laughs> you gave them their sample and now they're interested in more. They're well, and like what you've seen is if you've looked at who's participating in proceedings, um, you know, last week compared to a year and a half ago, it's an entirely different set of stakeholders. Um, you know, well, it's not different. You still have CCTA and CTIA and all the industry players and Charter and Verizon, et cetera. Um, but they used to be the only ones, really, with like very few exceptions. Or turn with somebody jump in occasionally on their own, but turn or our, our uh, Center for Accessible Technology has been a stalwart and awesome. Um, and they've actually been great about providing technical assistance to others to do the same. Both of them have. But now you have, you know, it's not quite at parity, but you have, you know, in some cases, literally dozens of community voices in these proceedings. And then that not only makes those proceedings more balanced and makes the decisions that come out of them more likely to be community serving, um, but it also is just this kind of like ecosystem support, right? So you get folks to to walk across coals. I mean, the number of the number of just open Zoom calls where it's like, okay, you're doing this. I'm just going to be on here. Paul Goodman from C4IT, we're just going to be on here and we're we're here to uh, walk you through anything or to let you vent all the curse words about how complicated this is, yep. whatever you need. I have been on a good number of those. Um, and in the context of that, you know, people sort of bond over this. And so now in the last, uh, I guess it was a week and a half ago or so, um, there was a proceeding that was really fast moving um, where WISPA, the wireless industry, um, became a party and asked the uh, CPUC to go back and change some sort of hard-won rules in the federal funding account that make it a wired and not a wireless account. And we were able to, within, I want to say it was like 24 hours, basically turn around a joint filing of a whole bunch of, uh, of organizations that had already done the work to become parties, already were familiar enough with the process, and had gotten to know each other on these, you know, uh, commiserating Zoom calls <laughs> to be able to trust each other enough to say, yeah, I'm going to read through it and I'm happy to kind of join these with you. Uh, so it does have a, an awesome kind of ecosystem effect too. Yes. So there's, there's hope. And when you get there people, so much hope <laughs> when you get people 
uh, up to speed and enthusiastic, um, they'll they'll join in, and I, I hope that that provides its own gravity to to keep going. Absolutely. Well, Shana, thank you so much for a whirlwind of updates from California, where there is hope. Uh, we see lots of movement in lots of different areas, and yet there is still so much more work to be done. <laughs> so, indeed, for- as indicated by our survey showing, like you know, I my the lawyers in my life were like, "Don't say discriminatory; that means something specific." Definitely, price disparities and potentially discriminatory, and I think you're going to start to see as a result of the study released today uh, and uh, and some attention that we've already been receiving as a result of it, um, some investigations and some real action on it. And this is something other groups can do in their locales as well and would be wonderful to collect this data. We are at some point possibly going to have data from the broadband labels that will be coming out again at some point. And uh, the broadband maps maps (laughs) next year at this time may be somewhat uh, useful, maybe. Uh, So um, getting that pipeline going to collect local data and potentially, you know, I think replicating what you've done there or trying to work with um, uh, consumer reports, which is putting that database together. Like there's different, there's different ways to move forward, but uh, local groups need to take action to collect this data themselves. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, um, we'll see you again in another uh, 20 shows. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sounds good. I'll clock it, Chris. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives, if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.